Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Uh, this morning, uh, as we uh, as we worship, we are going to look at First Samuel uh, chapter uh, chapter five, uh, and, uh, and we're going to talk about uh, worship. Um, there, there's some really encouraging statistics about uh, about the growth of Christianity around the world. Uh, so, in China, the 2010 estimates were that there were 68 million Christians in China, uh, and if trends continue, there could be more Christians in China than the U.S. Uh, in just a few years. And by 2050, China could be a majority Christian nation. Uh, while most of North, North Africa is dominated by uh, Islam, over 60% of sub-Saharan Africa identifies as Christian. And by the year 2050, that part of the world could be home to 40% of the world's self-identifying uh, Christians. Uh, the Iranian churches is one of the fastest growing Christian movements in, uh, in the country. Uh, the city of Seoul in South Korea has more megachurches per, ca- per capita than, uh, than any city in, uh, in the world. So, uh, so the worship of Jesus is, uh, is growing uh, all, uh, all over the world. Now, sometimes here in America, right, uh, in, the, in the West, uh, it feels like the uh, stati- statistics can be less than encouraging, right, in terms of uh, what we hear and what we see uh, and what we see around us. Uh, there's an, uh, an increase in the people who would say they don't go to church regularly, uh, an increase in the amount of people who would say they don't believe in God or that they don't have any uh, religious, uh, religious affiliation. Uh, but uh, worship is still alive and well, uh, and the reason is that everyone worships. And this is what we're going to talk about this morning, the fact that everyone worships. Uh, uh, it could be uh, fans at the Super Bowl, right, or, uh, or at a concert. It could be people who overwork or overeat or overspend. Uh, you can find it in the abundance of uh, uh, pornography on the Internet, selfies being posted. Uh, everywhere we look, we can see the evidence of, uh, of, of worship, of people worshiping uh, the things that are around them. Uh, David Foster Wallace was uh, he's sort of a philosopher and, um, uh, and thinker. He, uh, he wasn't a Christian, and, uh, and I don't think he really believed in God at all. Uh, and yet he gave this graduation speech, uh, uh, this commencement speech, where he talked about uh, the fact that everyone worships. And so, you know, obviously I don't agree with everything that he says here, but it's interesting that even as someone who is not a Christian and doesn't believe in God, uh, he, um, it, he could see what is evident all, all around us. And so I think, uh, I think it's going to be up here, but, uh, but I'll read it. It's a little bit long, but it's, but it's good. Uh, He says, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths uh, or some inviolable set of principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. 
And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths and proverbs and cliches, epigrams, parables. The skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need, you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Right? Everyone worships, right? And even people who, uh, who aren't Christians can see uh, that worship all, uh, all around us. Now this morning, we're going to continue our sort of Indiana Jones-like pursuit of the Ark of the Covenant. All right, we, uh, we started last week with uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we saw uh, the Israelites bring the Ark into battle. They lose the battle, and the Ark is taken uh, by their enemies, the, the Philistines. And, uh, and so we're going uh, to see, even in the Philistine uh, nation, right, that, uh, that people worship, that everyone worships. So no matter what your thoughts are about God, uh, we, uh, we worship. And so this morning, we're going to look at what drives us to worship, uh, whether it's worshiping God or beauty or money uh, or relationships, work, whatever it might be. Uh, why do we worship? And ultimately, uh, if we're creatures who are made to worship, what's something we could worship that, uh, that would actually uh, bring rest and peace to our souls instead of, uh, instead of more, uh, more anxiety and more frustration? Uh, so we're going to read chapter 5. Uh, and then we'll see what it has to say to us. So if you are able and willing, uh, once you stand and we'll read God's word together. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true, and it is good, and it is good for us. Uh, we pray that you would be at work 
uh, in us this morning. Uh, Give us the ability to hear what you have to say to us. Uh, Give us the ability to actually believe what you have to say. Uh, And we pray that through understanding and believing uh, that you would transform us uh, into people who love you more uh, and who love uh, to be with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so our, our first point is that, uh, is that everyone worships, right? Um, what does it mean to worship? Uh, to, give, uh, to give reverence to something, to uh, give adoration to something. Uh, it means to ascribe worth to something, right? To give worth and value uh, to, uh, to this thing that you're worshiping. To acknowledge that, uh, that something has a particular hold on, uh, on you and, uh, and, on your, and on your heart, right? Maybe in your, in your thoughts, in, uh, in your affections, and the decisions that you make, right? To worship something is to say that this thing uh, has enough meaning and value uh, to you that it's going to affect all of those different areas of your, uh, of your life. Now, part of the reason everyone worships is because it's the very reason that we were created, right? Uh, in, in the very beginning of the Bible, uh, God tells us that, uh, that he created uh, man, right? He created Adam and Eve, and he put them in a garden. Uh, and, and one of the main purposes that they were there for is to worship uh, him, right? And so he says, uh, here, you can, uh, you can live, and you can, um, and you can have these jobs to do. But he says, what your purpose is is to have me at the center, right? And so God tells Adam and Eve, he says, um, you need to have me at the center, and then everything else in your life will be sort of spokes around, uh, are, are around me in, uh, in the middle. And, and they, they do this for a little bit, but, but very quickly, all right, the Bible tells us uh, that, um, that they've replaced God at the center of their life with, uh, with themselves, right? And all of a sudden, they begin to, to, um, to say, well, what do, you, what do I want, right? What's most important to me? Um, what is going to make me feel good or what do I think is right? Uh, instead of asking those questions about, uh, about God. And, uh, and the Bible tells us, you know, from that moment, sin enters uh, into, uh, into the world, right? It, uh, it breaks the world. It breaks, uh, it breaks individual human hearts. And, and one of the things that it does is it damages our ability to actually worship, right? To, um, to worship what we are meant to worship, uh, God. Right? And, so, uh, and so from then on, uh, people have continued to worship, right? We've just, we've just worshiped created things, right? And things around us, uh, instead of worshiping God, who is the creator of, uh, of, of everything. So last week we saw that the Israelites were, uh, were worshiping other gods. They were making idols of things like power and, uh, and comfort. And so this week, again, we see the, uh, the, the pagan, uh, Philistines, uh, worshiping um, also, they're, they're doing the same kinds of things, right? We're introduced to the, to the temple that they worship in, right? They bring the ark back to this temple, uh, and, it's, uh, and it's for the god uh, Dagon, right? Now, this was probably some sort of god of, like, corn or wheat or harvest, uh, something, uh, something like that. Uh, they needed to eat, right? So they created a god that could give them what they needed, that could give them, uh, that could give them food. Uh, and so they had, um, they had gods for all sorts of things, right? They had, uh, they had gods of, uh, of fertility. They had gods of food. They had gods of partying, right? Um, whatever they thought was good, uh, they created a god to that, um, to that thing uh, that, they, um, that they saw as good. Um, and, uh, and now they have the ark as well, right? They've taken the ark, and, uh, and they've sort of kidnapped it, and... Um, 
uh, and taken it with them, this, uh, this object of Israelite worship also. Now, one of the reasons they probably took it is as a symbol of their victory, right? We saw last week that in the battle, uh, they, um, they win over, uh, over the Israelites. And so the ark is sort of this, um, this souvenir or this, uh, or this symbol. Uh, at, um, at FSU, uh, they, have, uh, they have this thing called the Sod Cemetery, all right? And, uh, and when they win like a big away game or a bowl game or something like that, they cut out a square of grass from the field where they won, uh, where they won. They signed somebody beforehand, and if they win, they cut the square of grass out from, the, from this field, this other stadium, and then they bring it back with them, and they put it in this, uh, in this area called the Sod Cemetery, and they put the score and the team that they beat on there, right, so that, um, so that they can be reminded of these, of these wins that they've had over these, uh, uh, over these other teams, right? And, uh, and essentially, this is what the Philistines are doing, right? They're, they're saying, we've had this win in battle, and we're going to take this ark as sort of a, a, a memento of, um, of, our, of our win to, uh, to remind us. Uh, and so, um, but where do they put it? They put it uh, in their temple for worship, right? And so they add it to just sort of the list of things that they, that they have for worship, right? Um, uh, the list just gets longer, and they don't seem to have a problem with, with worshiping whatever it is that they can find around them, right? They worship anything and everything, and the reality is because we're made for worship, uh, we, um, we, do the same, we do the same things. John Calvin said, uh, man's nature is to be a perpetual factory of idols, right? Uh, that um, uh, that, that our, our very nature is to, uh, is to take good things and turn them into idols, right? Turn them into things that we, uh, that we, that we worship, that we love in, uh, in a disproportionate way. To, uh, to what our hearts should actually be, be loving. Um, we, give, we give worth to these things so much so that they affect our decisions, they affect our attitudes, they affect uh, our desires, um, everything about us. So what, is this, uh, what does this look like practically? Right now, um, we can see it play out in our lives in, in lots of ways. Um, one like, really basic example, we'll go back to football for a minute, right? Um, uh, is uh, is my, uh, my love for the Florida State Seminoles, all right? Um, and so... Uh, so it's not wrong to, to cheer for, uh, for football teams, right? Um, uh, cheering for football teams is fun. Uh, we, um, uh, we can watch it. We can make fun of Gator fans together, right? We can do, um, uh, we can do all, of these, uh, all of these things, and there's nothing wrong with that. But at some point, it is possible for uh, even something like football to, um, to get an oversized portion of, uh, of our hearts, right? An oversized por- portion of our, of our affections, right? So for me, um, there may have been times in my life, right, where when the Seminoles lost, it affected me more than it should have, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and the way it plays out um, uh, most of the time is in the way I treat my family afterwards, right? And so, uh, uh, and so you know, if, um, if they have lost a big game, um, then I'm in a terrible mood, right? And, uh, and I'm impatient with my family, and, uh, uh, and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I say things that aren't, aren't nice, right? And, uh, and I get frustrated easily, uh, and, and all of these things. And all of a sudden, I can see that something that was meant to be fun, right, meant to be um, even a good thing, right, has turned into something more than that. Right to the to the extent that uh, that it's affecting my life in an un, in an unhealthy way. Right, it's got that much a hold of of my of my heart. Now, you know, we see that in all in all sorts of things. Right, it could be uh, uh, it could be 
kids, right? We, um, we can make an idol out of our kids and uh, uh, to the point where um, we have expectations that crush them, right? Or, uh, or we deal with, um, uh, with disappointments of the fact that we have less control in our kids' lives than we, um, than we, would, than we would like to or hope to, right? Maybe it's in, um, maybe it's in our, our marriage with our spouse, right? Um, we, uh, we, we make our spouse an idol by expecting them to provide for us all of the love and attention and all of the things that we desire most, right, when ultimately God is the one who's meant to, to provide that for us uh, first and foremost, right? Um, and, so, uh, and so we can, and so we can uh, suck the life out of our, of our spouses as well when we, um, when we make them uh, an idol. So everyone, everyone worships, right? And in any given moment, our, our emotions, our decisions, our attitudes are affected by what we're worshiping in, uh, in that moment. Right, so, so that brings us to our second point. If everyone worships, then we have to recognize that we worship what we love, right? Um, it's, uh, it's the thing that has a hold of our hearts uh, that, um, that is what we tend to worship most in the moment. Uh, both chapter 4 last week and chapter 5 this week in 1 Samuel, uh, there seems to be this underlying push uh, to, to answer, for the people who encounter God to answer a question, right? Um, are you going to worship, uh, worship him? Right? It seems as if God is saying to the Israelites last, last chapter, the Philistines this chapter, are you going to, to worship me? And the, and the answer for the Philistines uh, here is, uh, is no, right? That they are not going to worship God. If you, you, know, if you notice, everywhere the ark goes throughout, um, uh, throughout Philistia, throughout this, these cities, uh, it, causes, uh, it causes damage, right? There's, um, there's consequences, um, the Philistine gods are defeated. Uh, the Philistine people are suffering. Uh, and, um, and the sort of ironic thing is that the only one that seems to be worshiping in all of this is the Philistine god, right? The Philistine idol uh, seems to be the only, uh, the only one that's actually worshiping God, right? Twice you find him laying down, uh, face down at, at, um, uh, at the foot of the ark. And so the Philistines can see what's happening, right? They can see the damage that's being done to their people, uh, but they can't leave their old worship behind. Uh, and, so, uh, and so they suffer as a result. Why is it that, um, that we can worship the wrong things, even if we know maybe, you know, intellectually in our heads, what the right thing is? Right? Um, think, about it, uh, think about it this way. Um, we know that work shouldn't be our ultimate priority. Right? But it can stress us out, and it can cause us to neglect the things that we know in our heads are actually more, uh, more important. Right? We can know um, sex is not an ultimate thing, but we can be consumed by pornography anyhow. We can know that worshiping God is what we were made to do. Right? Worshiping God is the actual thing we were created to do. Uh, but we often have our faith drowned out by, uh, by just the anxiety and the busyness of the everyday, um, of the everyday things of life. And it's because we're driven by what we love, by what's going on in our hearts, as much or more than we're driven by what's going on in, uh, in our heads. It's not that what we know isn't important or doesn't matter, right? But our worship is often driven by our hearts, even in spite of what we know to be true in, uh, in our heads, right? Sometimes without, uh, without realizing it. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Right? So where does, where does life come from? Right? Where does life flow out for us? From the heart, right? There's something internal that drives what we do, uh, even though sometimes we know something else um, would have been better to do. 
right? Think about it this way. Um, have you ever uh, known you had to do homework, but sat there watching Netflix or, uh, or YouTube instead, right? Um, in that moment, uh, your, uh, your desire to, uh, to zone out or to do whatever, right, has, um, is stronger than your fear of getting a bad grade, right? Have you known you should only eat one cookie, right, <laughs> but, <laughs> but eaten the whole package instead, right? Um, uh, uh, in that moment, right, your, uh, uh, your, um, your heart's desire for those delicious cookies, right, has outweighed what you know in your head is a bad decision, right, and an unhealthy uh, decision to eat all of, uh, all of the cookies. Right? Have you ever known that you shouldn't respond in anger, Right, to, this, uh, to, to what this person has said or done, um, you know you shouldn't respond, and you send the text message anyhow. Right? You send the angry text message uh, anyhow, and, and you regret it. You knew you shouldn't have done it. You regret it afterwards, but something inside was driving you uh, to do it more than just what ha- your head and logic uh, had, uh, had control over. And this is what we're talking about in worshiping idols. There's an order in our hearts to the things that we love and that we worship whether it's money or success or popularity or reputation or relationships or even your faith. Whatever you give the most weight and the most value to uh, in, uh, uh, in, in your life, in your heart, that, that's what is going to determine the decisions that you make. All through this chapter, all through chapter 5, we see the weight of God's hand. Right? He, he uses the, the author uses the word weight often. Right? The, the heavy hand, the weight of the hand of God is on them, and they're experiencing uh, the consequences as a result. But it's still not enough to change what the Philistines are worshiping. Our hearts tend to work the same way. We're less impacted by the fear of consequences than we are, uh, um, uh, than we are drawn to something uh, that's good or, uh, or, or beautiful. Right? Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was a kid, uh, um, I, I bought, bit my nails all the time. I still bite my nails. But, um, uh, but my mom was determined uh, to help me stop this habit, right? And, uh, and so, you know, she tried all these different things, uh, and eventually she bought, this, uh, she bought this stuff, right? And it was this clear liquid stuff that you paint on your fingernails, and it tastes, like, terrible, right? And, uh, and so the idea was you have it on there, and then you go to bite your fingernails, and it tastes gross, and then you stop, right? And uh, and so we tried that um, for a while, and for a little bit, it worked, right? But then what happened? I just got used to the taste, right? <laughs> and so, um, and so um, I, just, uh, I just kept biting my nails because, um, because the consequences, right, um, didn't outweigh the benefit I saw of, um, of biting my nails when I was, uh, when I was nervous or, uh, or anxious. Um, right, the consequences kind of lost their power uh, to, help me, uh, to help me stop. So, so what motivates us in our lives, right, even more than the fear of consequences? It, it's being drawn to something good or true or beautiful that we can love more than anything else, that we can love more than those, um, than those other uh, idols that have a hold of our heart. Right? One author called this the expulsive power of a greater affection. All right? The expulsive power of a greater affection. And essentially what he said was, the only way for us to stop worshiping money or success or relationships or, or whatever it is that, um, that, that has a grip on us, uh, the only way for us to love those things less is by finding something even better that we can love more. And that greater love pushes out uh, those, um, those unhealthy, uh, 
uh, and inordinate loves as a result. Right? Think about um, think about a vase. Right? If you have a, if you have a vase, right? Um, if it's empty, then it's filled with air. Right? Now, how do you get the air out of the vase? You pour water into it. Right? And as you pour water into the vase, as the as it fills up with water, where does the air go? Right? The air gets pushed out out of the top of the vase until eventually, right? The vase is filled with water and has no and has no air uh, left in it. And this is this is what. Um, what he's trying to get us to, under, to understand. Uh, for us to displace the disordered loves in our life, we need to displace them with a greater love. And this is the offer that God makes to us. Something greater that can come in and push out uh, those, um, those unhealthy uh, loves. As we read First Samuel, it's important for us to remember who this book is written to, right? It's written to, to the Israelites. And what's the writer telling them here in chapter 5? He's painting a picture for them that God wins, right? That God is more powerful than any other God. That God is better than anything the people around the Israelites have, uh, have to offer. And their God, he won't disappoint. He's the one their hearts should be longing for because he's, because he's better, because he's greater. Now, the Bible is also written to somebody else, right? Who's it written to? It's written to us. And God's giving us this same reminder that God wins, that God is better, and he's the one that can displace those, um, those other loves in, uh, in our life. Which brings us to our third point, right? Everyone worships. We worship what we love. And God is the only one who's worthy of that, of that worship, right? Jesus compels us to love him by the way he first loves us, right? He wins, he's better, and Jesus does not disappoint. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Now, now, one thing you might be asking, right, uh, through this is, well, what's wrong with my idols, right? Why, why can't I worship uh, my idols? Why can't I worship things like money and success and popularity and security? If they're good things, right, if, if something is good, doesn't more of it just mean that you have, you have more of a, of, a, of a good thing? The problem is our idols tend to be good things but they also tend to make terrible gods. Remember that graduation speech from earlier? What did he say? He said, when we worship anything other than God, what happens? Those things eat us alive. He said, if you try to find meaning in money and stuff, you'll never have enough, right? If you worship your body and physical beauty, you'll always feel ugly because there'll always be somebody uh, um, <laughs> prettier than you, uh, and, um, uh, and, your, uh, and your beauty is always uh, fading. Worship power, and you'll feel, end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need to have more power over others. Worship your intellect, right? Being seen as smart. And what did he say? You'll end up feeling uh, stupid and a fraud and always on the verge of being found out. Our idols always overpromise and underdeliver. Now, sometimes we get fooled, right? Because our, our idols might actually work well for, uh, for a little while, right? Um, but, that never, but that never lasts. Right? We find our identity in our, in our looks. Uh, and like we said, uh, beauty, uh, beauty fades. Um, we find meaning and significance in our job. And then, uh, and then we get laid off or, uh, or, or we, lose our, we lose our job. Maybe your financial security is what's really giving you peace. But then the stock market tanks or uh, you have unexpected expenses. And, and that security you thought you had uh, begins to disappear. Maybe you define yourself by your grades. There's always somebody smarter. 
Maybe you define yourself by uh, how athletic you are, right? But there's always somebody uh, better than, uh, than you. And even when you achieve success, it's never quite what, uh, quite what you hoped, right? Uh, Tom Brady, uh, after, I think, his, after his third Super Bowl, he gave this interview on 60 Minutes, uh, and, uh, and he was talking about what it was like to, you know, to win a, another Super Bowl, and he said, I've reached my goal, my dream, but there's got to be something more than this. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be, right? He'd, he'd achieved, like, kind of the pinnacle of, of success, what his whole life had been about, and he felt like there's got to be something more, right? Jim Carrey, the actor, said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer, right? This coming from somebody who <laughs> was rich and famous and did everything he ever, uh, he ever hoped for, right? Look at, uh, look at verse uh, 3 and 4 again in, uh, in the passage. It says, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left. Right? The, the same thing is, is, is happening here that Tom Brady and Jim Carrey are talking about. Right? The Philistines thought they'd won. Right? They thought their God was, um, was great. Uh, and they wake up in the morning uh, to be sorely disappointed. Um, uh, their victory is not what they, uh, not what they thought it was. Uh, their idol is literally bowing down uh, to the ark. Right? God cuts off uh, the head and the hands of the idol. Right? He, he humiliates the, um, the idol by showing that, um, uh, that this idol doesn't have true wisdom. Right? His, his head's cut off. He doesn't have true power. His, his hands are, uh, are cut off. And did you catch the irony of their, uh, of their God? Um, when the idol's laying down on the ground, what happens? The Philistines have to pick it up and put it back in its place. Right? So not only is Dagon not more powerful than God, he's not even more powerful than the people that are worshiping him. Right? The only way that he can get up off the ground is if his own people pick him up and put him, uh, and put him back in his place. But the Israelites' God, our God, is worthy of our worship. Right? He's worthy of our worship because of his power. He's worthy of our worship because of his mercy. Now his power is obvious in this passage. Right? He defeats the Philistine God. He defeats... Uh, the Philistine people. Um, and notice he does it all on his own, right? He doesn't need anybody's help. Uh, he's sovereign. He's the king. He does whatever he wants, and whatever he does uh, is good. This is a powerful God who doesn't disappoint. This is the kind of God uh, we, can, uh, we can worship. Our idols will always let us down uh, because they can't deliver what they promise us. But our worship of God never disappoints. Because he knows exactly what we need, right? And he always provides what we need. Now, sometimes we feel disappointed because we think what we have is not what we wanted, right? But um, God knows it's exactly what we need. And so in the short term, we may feel disappointment with the things that we've been given. But ultimately, right, we, um, we will feel joy because we'll see how God um, has, uh, has provided exactly what we needed. Now, God's also worthy of our worship because of his mercy, right? We've been following the ark around, but we haven't talked a lot specifically about the ark. So I think there's a picture of the ark we were going to put up there, and, um, and let me just tell you a little bit about, uh, about the ark. It's a rectangular wooden box that's covered in, uh, in gold, right? It's got rings on both sides for two, uh, for two poles to be able to go, uh, to go through it. 
um, because you, they, people couldn't touch, uh, they couldn't touch the ark, right? The ark was, the, uh, was a representation of the, the presence of God, and, uh, and if somebody uh, touched it, then they would, uh, then they would, then they would die. Uh, and so the poles were there so that they could carry it and bring them with them wherever they went. Now, inside the ark, there's three things, right? Um, uh, uh, there, there were three things that they stored in, uh, in the ark. The first one was uh, the Ten Commandments, right? So the tablets that God had given Moses uh, for the Ten Commandments, they, um, they put them in, uh, in the ark. Uh, the, the second thing is a bowl of manna, right? Do you remember what manna is? Manna was the food that God uh, provided for the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness. That's how he, that's how he took care of them uh, as, they, um, uh, as, as they were wandering. And then the third thing, we mentioned it last week, right, was the staff of Aaron uh, that, um, that uh, Aaron used to, to lead the people as he, uh, as he went around. And so, then, uh, and so on top of the box was a mercy seat, all right? It was called. Uh, there were two cherubim, or angels, on either side of the, uh, of the, of, of the lid, and it, and it was called the, they called it the, the mercy seat. And the glory and the presence of God uh, would, uh, would show up in the middle of this, uh, of, of these cherubim, like a, like a throne, kind of like he's sitting on, on a throne. And then once a year, all right, the high priest would go into the Ark of the Covenant and, uh, and he would sprinkle blood from, from a sacrifice, right, from, uh, uh, from, from, some, from an animal like a lamb that they had sacrificed. And this, um, the, this sprinkling of blood would spare them from, from, God's, from God's judgment by providing, uh, by providing forgiveness, right? It was, it was pointing to the forgiveness that God was, uh, was offering them. So the ark and the mercy seat vividly display uh, God's, um, uh, God, God's mercy towards, uh, towards us, right? They point, to, they point to the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, think about just the Ten Commandments for a minute, right? Uh, inside the ark, the Ten Commandments are there, and they're a reminder of what separates us from God, right? Um, they're a reminder to the people that the reason we are separated from God, the reason that we need something to help us worship him is because we don't keep the Ten Commandments um, the way, um, the way that, we're, that, that, we're, uh, that we're meant to, right? Um, even what, we're, what we've been talking about this morning, right? The fact that we are able to turn good things and turn them into idols, right? Breaks the first commandment right off the bat. That should have no other gods before me, right? And so, um, and so the Ten Commandments are in there as a reminder to the people uh, that, um, uh, that they fall short, right? But they also point to Jesus. Right? Because Jesus is the one who's come and kept the commandments perfectly. Right? He's the one that God has provided uh, to, um, to do what we can't do for ourselves. Right? To keep the law of, uh, of God. He was perfect in our place. And the mercy seat on top of the ark reminds us that the only way we can be restored to a relationship with God is through, uh, is through the blood. Right? Through the blood of the Lamb. Do you remember what John the Baptist said? Uh, when he first saw Jesus, right? He's, uh, he's standing there, he sees Jesus coming, and he points, and what does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? This is what he was doing. He was pointing back to the mercy seat. He was saying, Jesus is the one whose blood is going to be spilled um, uh, uh, like the lambs uh, to take away uh, the sins of his people. As I read this week, uh, there's something that was really, uh, that was a really interesting um, and I don't know if that I've thought about before. If you remember when uh, Mary gets to the tomb on Easter morning, right? The, the tomb is open. Uh, she goes in, and, uh, and it's empty, right? Um, Jesus isn't there. And what's inside the tomb? Do you remember? Yeah, there's, there's angels, right? There's two, there's two angels that are there. They say, uh, you know, why are you looking for Jesus? He's not, uh, he's not here anymore. Um, he's alive. 
But the, the Bible actually tells us where the angels were, right? There was one on each side of this, of this seat, of this bench that Jesus' body had been laid on, one at the head and one at the foot, right? Almost like cherubim on the mercy seat, right? And, the, uh, and in between was where Jesus' body was laid, right? The sacrifice for our sins, just like the ark points us to here, right? Another cool um, signpost uh, of, uh, of Jesus. Uh, Tim Keller said, if you treasure anything else in your life, if you make anything but Jesus your ultimate treasure, it will drive you, it'll control you, It'll demand that you die for it. But Jesus Christ is the only treasure that died for you, died to get you. Jesus died for you. His body was broken. His blood was shed for you. So you could belong to him. This is the mercy he offers. And it's this mercy that compels us uh, to love him back. Like we said, what's the greater affection Right? That can cause us to let go of the idols in our life. The idols that are constantly disappointing us. The idols that are constantly um, causing us harm. It's a growing affection for Jesus. Right? The more we look to Jesus, the more we see what he's done for us, the more it causes us to want to love him back. Right? To want to worship him in response. We won't loosen our grip on the idols in our life until we begin to cling to Jesus uh, more tightly. Uh, in Jonah, he says, uh, those who cling to worthless, worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, right? When we cling to worthless idols, we forfeit the grace that's offered to us. And this is why God gives us regular ways uh, to see him and be reminded of him and what he's done, right? We read his word, we pray, we gather together as a, as a church, uh, we sing, um, we celebrate communion. In each of these things, we're not trying to get God to love us more through those. We're growing in our affections for him because we're being reminded of who he is and what he's done for us, something that we so easily forget. So everyone worships, and Jesus is the only one truly worthy, worthy of our worship. So my prayer is that we would worship him more and more as we begin to see and be reminded of his goodness uh, more and more as well, to be reminded of how he first loved now, one of the ways that we do this, like I said, is by celebrating communion together, which is what we're going to do. Uh, what we're going to do next. Communion, like the ark, points us uh, to Jesus, right? To um, uh, to help us experience uh, his uh, his presence, right, and remind us of what he's done for us. Uh, listen to uh, to these verses from uh, from Romans uh, chapter three. Is that is that up there? Um. There we go. All right, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Right, this sums up what we've been talking about. We've all sinned, right? We've all worshiped something other than Jesus, and we've done it a lot. So what justifies us before God is not how good we are or anything we've done, right? He died, uh, so that we could live with and for him, right? He's our propitiation, our, our sacrifice uh, for our sins. It's the blood of Jesus. So in communion, uh, the bread represents his body, the wine, his blood, broken and shed for us, so that we could be made right with him. It's interesting, later in Romans chapter 3, it says, Jesus is both just and the justifier of those who believe in him. 
Uh, he's just because a holy God has to punish uh, sin and punish evil. But he's our justifier because he takes that punishment on himself in our place. So just like God defeated the Philippians, uh, the Philistines in, uh, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 5 on the Israelites' behalf, he's conquered sin and death right, on our behalf as well. Remember, the Israelites did nothing. Right? There's nothing that we can do. Um, God has done it, uh, and we get to put our faith uh, in him. So this table should give us peace and joy as we come, knowing that our greatest enemies, sin and death, have been defeated. Now, we believe the benefits of communion are only for those who come in faith. So we'd encourage you uh, to, to think about, as you come, your, uh, uh, what you believe about, about Jesus. Right? If your faith isn't in him, uh, then consider, uh, consider taking hold of him for the first time, putting your faith in him uh, for the first time uh, this morning. Our faith in him is doing, our faith in him is in doing what he has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. Right? So if we come in faith, we can come with confidence, right? knowing that it's not that we don't come based on uh, how good we've been or how great a week we've had. We come based on the finished work of Jesus. So just as a reminder, when we, uh, when we start in a minute, we'll, uh, we'll start from the back, all right? And the back rows will come through these center aisles, uh, and there'll be stations on each side, and then uh, you can grab uh, bread and a, um, and a cup and then go back to your seats on the outside. Uh, for the... Um, uh, for the uh, the wine, um, the outside ring is juice, and then the inside ring are, uh, are wine as you, uh, as you take it. So um, what we're going to do, I'm going to give you just a few moments to quietly uh, prepare your hearts for, uh, for communion. Um, talk to God. You can thank him. You can, uh, you can repent and ask for forgiveness for something. You can just draw near to him. But take a few moments, and then, uh, and then I'll pray, and, um, and I'll get us started. If you're serving communion, you can come up. Father, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Give us joy in belonging to him this morning. Thank you for your presence here with us. And thank you for the peace that we find in knowing that we belong to you through our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.